Good morning, everyone. If you want to read along with me this morning from your uh, Bible, turn with me to Mark 10, 32 through 45. But you can also read along on the screen. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to, up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. But even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful day that you've given us. God, we have so much to be thankful for. But most of all, we are thankful for you our God, our great God. May you be magnified today, Lord. Thank you, Father, for all that you've given us, all the good gifts. I thank you, Father. I know as we celebrate Mother's Day today, Father, I thank you for all the great mothers represented in Dino Church and all the great mothers that we have read about around the world, Lord. Father, from your word, Hannah, to uh, Timothy's mom, Titus's mom, and to our Lord Jesus's mom. But Lord, there is no parent that is greater than you. You are a great and awesome God and Father. You have lavished us with a love that is everlasting and that is incomprehensible. So Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for these moms. May we be mothers that um, would follow in your steps, that we would be servant-hearted, that we would... Um, lavish our children with your love and lord i pray for the women who maybe their moms are at home with you in heaven god that you would comfort their hearts this day and maybe there's some out there that 
aren't mothers, Father, that you would comfort them because they can be a mother to the homeless, a mother to small children in Sunday school, a mother to a woman who um, just needs you. So Father, there's many shapes and sizes and we don't put you in a box, but we thank you, Father God. We thank you for being our awesome God and Father. And we worship you and praise you. And we wanna give you the glory for all things. And so, Father, now that may the rest of this worship, Father, be pleasing to you from the music, uh, again, to the reading and preaching of your word, that you would fill our brother David, Father God, with your spirit, that he would proclaim truth and divide it rightly. Father, that you would edit his words and that they would be so spirit-filled. Father, thank you. May we be a church, Father God, and that just wouldn't hear it, but we would act upon your word, Father and that we would um, live it out and walk it out in our daily life. And Father, just as the reading of your word said, you are great and greatly to be praised. There is no one like you. There is no one as great as you. And we worship the Son, Father, who, see, who is seated at the right hand and who intercedes for us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, who also makes intercession and leads us to yourself. So, Father, there's so much to be thankful for this morning, and we thank you, we worship you, and we praise you, Father, for you are awesome and great. You are mighty and holy. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the great I am, and there is no one, no one like you. You are our hope and our anchor. You are faithful in the times of uncertainty and the times of want and plenty. So we thank you. You are our constant. You're our rock. And we worship you this morning. We pray that this morning would be pleasing to you. So thank you again, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, uh, Daniel Community Church. It's, uh, it really is a delight uh, to be with you. And, you know, like Leota said, we miss, we miss being physically present. And I got to be honest, this is the first time that I've had the the pleasure to teach uh, from from Zoom, and it is odd. It's odd not to be able to see faces. It's odd not to be able to see reactions and emotions, and uh, and so it's it's different. So John and Carrie and and Greg and others that have done this, uh, I applaud you because it is uh, it's a different environment. But to look forward to the day when we can be back together. And and I know Carrie said that in his head he was picturing. The family and picturing where you were sitting and very honestly that's that's incredibly helpful so i'm looking to my left and i'm looking to the center and i'm looking to my right and i'm picturing your faces in the family and i see you out there and it is good to be with the family again for those of you that's uh, a happy mother's day to all of you and uh, for those of you that are moms for those of you that have sacrificed so greatly happy mother's day to you so, all right, we are able to, and what's interesting is, um, I think I'm going to have to advance both my slides on my screen differently than my slides, so I will be doing this twice, and that is okay. So, how many of you remember the book, The Purpose Driven Life? That for, for many of us, it was in the early 90s, and I know there was a lot of controversy that came out uh, in and around um, the book. Uh, in and around some theology that was in it, but the reality is it was incredibly impactful 
to me at the time that I read it. Uh, it was impactful to many others that I knew. And, and one of the things that was very interesting at the beginning of the book, it was one of the more profound beginnings to a book that I've ever read because it started with the phrase, it is not about you. And the reality is when I read that, it just struck me. It just stopped me. It stopped me in my place because sometimes our greatest struggle in the Christian life is against ourselves. That we have this tendency to view life as if we are the center of the universe. That oftentimes we want life, people, events, and even God to revolve around us. That at the heart of pride is a desire I have in my heart for recognition. At the heart of discontentment is not getting what I want. And at the heart of my impatience oftentimes is not getting what I want when I want it. I just seem to have this natural orientation to think about myself and to serve myself and to elevate myself. Can anybody, can anybody relate to that? But the reality is Jesus was different. Jesus didn't have a me orientation. He was about the father's business, submitting himself to the father's will and committed to rescuing us from ourselves. That's why he came, that's why he died. He made himself last and he calls us to do the same. He made himself least and he calls us to do the same. He's our example and he's our savior and the rightful center of our universe. Well, this morning's text is gonna present a dichotomy between Jesus' motivations and the motivations and the ambitions of his disciples. And in reality, as we read about the disciples, we're gonna realize there's a lot of us in them and there's a lot of them in us. And we're going to relate that oftentimes our motivations are in fact in contrast to, uh, to those of Jesus. So would you pray with me as we open God's word? Father God, we love you. And uh, Father, just lift up this morning. Uh, Father, pray that you would speak to us through your word. Pray that your spirit would do business in our hearts. Um, Father, it's, it's not about technology and whether it works or not. Father, it's about hearing your word. word. It's about ascribing authority to it. It's about receiving it. And it's about applying it. And it's about uh, wanting to love you with greater zeal and greater affection than we do. And Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that we would receive your word this morning. Father, as authoritative, as practical, Father, as significant in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Again, I'm going to have to bounce twice between slides and I do apologize for the delay. So, all right. So we have been uh, studying the book of Mark for several months now, walking in the footsteps of, of our Savior and Lord. If you've been, been at Dina for a while, you, you have seen this. And in chapter eight, there was this big pivot. There was this pivot from Peter's great confession. And now Jesus has turned his feet towards Jerusalem and is focusing his time and his teaching on the preparation of the disciples. That the beginning of his ministry was about validation. It was about going out to the people. And now as he makes his way back to Jerusalem, it's really about preparing these 12. And that's where we start in our text this morning. It says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. 
And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to them. So it's very typical in this day and age that rabbis, teachers had followers, and the followers generally would walk behind their teachers. So this is very typical of the day. And one thing that's interesting to notice is the contrast in the disposition of the followers, that it mentions that they were amazed, and then it mentioned that they were fearful. Now, as I was observing the text, I thought, well, maybe he's speaking about different audiences, that maybe there were those that were amazed and those that were fearful. Maybe he was talking about the disciples that were filled with amazement and others that were fearful. But, you know, the more I thought about it, it's typically reactions that, that we feel in, in Christ and following Christ, that we're amazed at who he is and we're amazed at what he's done. But oftentimes we are fearful as to what it will mean to follow him, as to what it will cost to follow him. And so this journey, you know, at the end of this verse, he says, and again, he took the 12 aside and began to teach them what was going to happen to him. The journey to Jerusalem was this time of preparation for the disciples. You see him engaging with an audience and then always pulling the 12 back in to teach them. For it was through these 12, after his death, resurrection, and his, and his ultimately going up to heaven, it's through them that the church is going to be founded. So he's trying to prepare them for the suffering, the persecution, and the glorious calling that is ahead of them. So you'll see in verses 33 and 34, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now you notice in the text that Jesus used eight future tense verbs, all implying certainty in describing the coming events. And I think the thing that struck me with this is that Jesus clearly understood what awaited him and what the Father was asking of him. And yet he went anyway, that faithfulness compelled him, that love committed him. And I think you need to stop before you go on in the text and, and just reflect on that for a moment, emote on that for a moment that Jesus knew long before he arrived in Jerusalem in the events of the Passion Week, what awaited him. He had long walks and long journeys and long nights to think about the judgment and the shame and the suffering, and the death and separation. And yet, he went anyway. Jesus could not have been more clear in his instruction to the disciples of what was going to happen. I mean, again, look at the text. We're going to go to Jerusalem, delivered to the chief priests and scribes, handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now, we see parallel accounts in other Gospels, and interesting in Matthew 20, 17 through 19, and Luke 18, 31 through 34 are the parallel accounts. And it's interesting because a lot of time in parallel accounts, you'll see the, the authors use differing details depending on what they want to emphasize in a particular event. But you really don't see that happen here. You see them use the exact same details. 
which is interesting and I think something to observe. That number one, even though they didn't fully comprehend it, comprehend it when it was told to them, the disciples heard clearly the prophetic words of Jesus when he spoke them. And then you'll see that after the fact, obviously after Christ reappeared, when they understood the significance, the reality of what Jesus was teaching, that each author took great care to write exactly what Jesus had said. So not only were there parallel accounts in, uh, in different gospels saying the exact same thing, but you'll actually see in the book of Mark, and we've already walked through these, that there were repetitive teachings, repetitive prophetic moments when Christ was communicating to his disciples what awaited him. And you can see this in this chart that was in Dr. Constable's notes. So you'll see at the great confession at, uh, in chapter 8, verse 31, that Jesus told them what was going to happen of the condemnation by the Sanhedrin, the mocking, the spitting, and the scourging, the execution and the resurrection that awaited. You see uh, in 930 that he talked about being handed over to the Sanhedrin and then once again spoke of his execution and his resurrection. But then in this text, he gives complete detail. He reiterates what he said previously, but he adds nuances. He adds information of the handing over to the Sanhedrin, the condemnation by the Sanhedrin, the handing over to the Romans, the mocking, spitting, and scourging, the execution, and the resurrection. And then, of course, in the coming weeks, we're going to be walking through the Passion. We're going to see these events come to life and what it looked like for Christ to have processed these coming events for so long and then to actually walk in them to see the reactions of his disciples. We're going to live that. Now it's interesting to look at the reactions of the disciples in each one of these occasions when Jesus was, was giving them a foretelling of what was going to happen. In 832, if you'll remember after the great confession, Peter actually pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. He says he simply cannot comprehend that this would happen. And he simply says that it can't happen. In the, in the, in the version in, in chapter 9, verse 30 through 32, you'll see it says that they did not understand this statement. They were afraid to ask him. They simply, they just didn't understand, but they didn't want to bring this up. And it's interesting that, as we'll see in today's text, that following that second telling of Christ talking about what was going to happen you see this debate amongst the disciples of which one of them is greatest. And then finally, we'll see in today's text that after Christ gives more detail than he's ever provided, there really isn't a, a reaction noted by the author, but they immediately get into this who is greatest amongst them again. So what is the common element amongst the reaction of the disciples in each one of these occasions? They simply don't get it or they won't accept it, or both. And it's interesting, you know, I thought a lot about this is why? Why, I mean, the teaching simply can't be more clear. It says that he often pulled them aside as a private audience. So it wasn't as if there was distraction. There's great clarity in what he told them. So why couldn't the disciples comprehend this? 
Number one, the tradition of what the Messiah was supposed to look like and accomplish was deeply ingrained. And not only that was it deeply, it was deeply desired. That they longed for a physical king and a physical kingdom. They longed for it to be happening imminently. And they simply just couldn't process that Christ was giving them a different version, a different outcome than what they had envisioned. Also, think about the disciples. And as they had walked with Christ for these three years, what had they seen Jesus do? I mean, think of the miracles that they had witnessed. Think of the healings and the raising of the dead. Remember Jesus calming the sea when they said, who is this? What man is this that he even speaks over the winds and the waves? And that this power that Jesus obviously possessed for James, John, and Peter when they went up in the transfiguration, and they actually saw Christ glorified, and they saw the Father anointing Christ. How could they possibly envision a world in which Jesus would be overpowered by either the Jewish leadership or the Romans? They simply couldn't process it. But beyond this, what was completely incomprehensible to them is the reality of what Jesus was teaching. And that is that Jesus would lay down his own life. He simply couldn't process it. And that's why it was so hard for the disciples, even though the instructions was clear and repeated, it was so hard for them to comprehend it and embrace it. But you know, I thought a lot about this and prayed through it. And, and I kind of thought, are we really all that different? I mean, as followers of Christ, is there clarity around our understanding of certain instructions, certain scriptures, and yet we struggle to embrace it and to obey it? Do we have revealed knowledge? Check. Clear instruction? Check. Have we witnessed through the Gospels Christ's example? Check. Are we indwelled with the Holy Spirit? Check. We're given this clear theological understanding of God and man and Christ and sin and salvation and faith, this promise of God's return of what heaven awaits. And yet, many times, practically speaking, though we have clarity on the instruction, we often don't behave it with our lives. And, and I thought a few examples might be helpful. Number one, in Mark 9, 45 through 47, John spoke on this just in the last week or so. If your foot or eye causes you to stumble, remove it. Basically, this speaks to rigorous, rigorously eliminating all distractions all temptations in your life. Is that instruction in any way unclear? And yet if we were to examine our lives and examine our hearts, is, is, that, is that real? Is that a reality? Do, do we rigorously remove all distraction and all temptation? What about Mark 10, 21 and 22, the rich young ruler that John taught on just last week that he was saddened because he couldn't give up everything. Instruction is not unclear. But is that us? Could we, would we really give up everything to follow him? What about 1 Corinthians 9, 24, where it says, we're to run in such a way as to win the prize, that there is such vigor, such focus in the way that we're running this Christian race. Is that, is that true? Is, is, our, is our walk with Christ, is our run with Christ um, characterized by vigor and focus and single-mindedness? Or are we easily distracted? Could we be even accused at times of being lazy? What about 1 Peter 5 8? 
It says, be on alert, be alert and sober. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Do we live as if there's this reality of Satan? And I don't think any of us would say that the teaching is unclear. It's a repeated instruction, and yet embracing it and, 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 and behaving that way is oftentimes the struggle. We're so much like the disciples that it's not the lack of understanding many times that keeps us from a life of obedience. It's simply the struggle we have with embracing it. And we're going to see this dichotomy, this contrast, even more as we continue on in the text. So here in, uh, and I'm so sorry, I've got to bounce between my notes, and uh, there we go. So let me read the next verses. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right, and one on your left in your glory. Now, James and John, they're the sons of Zebedee and Salome, uh, basically cousins of Jesus. They were two of the inner circle that um, with, with them being family, with them being the inner circle, um, they, they might've felt entitled. They might've felt that it was, it was their right to ask for such a thing. And basically this idea of sitting at the right hand and the left hand of Christ has this idea of places of honor places of recognition, places of authority in the Messianic kingdom that, that if you, again, think of the way the disciples are processing this at the moment, they're thinking that this is happen, happening physically and it's happening imminently. And so they ask for these places of honor. But it does still seem a little shocking, doesn't it? That they would ask the question. I started trying to think about in our culture, what would be a similar ask? What would be a similar question? And and in our business uh, with our company, we're currently building out a new office at the moment. And, and I thought it would be like just, you know, someone in the company walking up to our two founders and saying, I, I'd really like the corner office. Or maybe somebody joining the firm and, and walking in and saying to the CEO, you know, I, I really would like the senior VP title. That, that may be a, a way to process it in our culture of what it would be like to ask such a thing. Now, what was the motivation behind the ask? I think we see that it was pride, that it was a desire for recognition, a recognition, a desire for glory. Now, how do we how do we know that? How, how do we how, why do we see that as the motivations of James and John? And I think you can see it in the rest of the text. You can see it in the reactions of both Jesus and the other disciples in uh, chapter ten forty one. You'll see, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John, that they weren't happy. Now, Jesus teaching that, and Jesus teaching that follows, right? So not only are the disciples react and they have an indignation at the request, but what does Jesus teach them when he pulls them together? That he pulls them together and he teaches on, if you really desire to be great, this is the truth of what greatness looks like in the coming kingdom. So I think it's clear what the motivations were. And I think another thing that really struck me in studying the text is when you see the preceding verses of 32 through 34, and you see Jesus for the third time speaking to what awaits him, what he is preparing his heart to do and what he is fully willing to do. And then you see both in chapter nine and now in chapter 10, 
what immediately follows with the disciples is that they're having debates of who is greatest. And there's just such a tragic contrast there between the motivations and the heart of the disciples versus Christ. And how discouraging do you think that must have been to Christ? You know, oftentimes we, we, we follow in the Gospels that Jesus often had companionship. But I wonder how often Jesus was truly lonely. The only one who understood what was coming. The only one who was embracing and willing to do what God was asking him to do. And surrounded by those that had such differing motives. But before Jesus is going to respond to this kind of audacious request that they've made, he's, he's first going to ask them a couple of pretty sobering questions. Look at verses 38 and 39. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right hand or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, oftentimes throughout scripture, uh, in the Old Testament and the New, you see the cup as being a symbol of suffering. You see baptism as being a symbol of suffering and death. And so with that reality, with this understanding of what the cup and the baptism means, and yet look at the, again at the response of James and John. They simply said, we are able. Now, in the Net Bible, it often gives notes in the way that they interpret a certain text. It's incredibly helpful amidst reading commentaries and other versions to kind of look into and see those that looked into the Greek and the Hebrew. But I thought the comment that was made uh, in the Net Bible notes was, was phenomenal, and it said this. No more naive words have ever been spoken as those found coming here from James and John. We are able. They said it with such confidence and ease, yet they had little clue as to what they were affirming. Yet in the next sentence, Jesus confirms that they will indeed suffer for his name. Jesus says, can you bear the cup and the baptism? And their response is, we are able. And again, it just speaks to, they just didn't understand. They just couldn't comprehend the reality of what Jesus was telling them, of what awaited them, of what God's plan was through, for his redemptive plan through Christ and what that would mean for the disciples. So in verse 39, Jesus does prophesy that James and John will both suffer. The cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. And they both did, with James uh, being the first apostle to experience martyrdom. And John, most believe, was the last. But then to the actual question that they asked, to the actual request that they made, Jesus doesn't answer it. He simply defers to the Father and says that it is not my place to address it. But now we're going to step away from the actual conversation with Jesus, James, and John and, and look at the reaction of the other disciples, which is really interesting because you would think that James and John would pull Peter aside outside of the presence of the other disciples to make such an audacious request. 
but it doesn't seem that they did. It seems that they had this conversation with Christ in front of the others. And so now you step back and you see in verse 31, hearing this, the 10 began to feel indignant with James and John. Now, indignant is a term that I think most of us probably believe we understand, right? We think we know what that means, but it, it may not be a term we use in our, in our normal you know, speaking language every day. So I did look up the definition and it says it's a feeling characterized by or expressing strong displeasure at something considered unjust, offensive, insulting, or base. So what was the other disciples' reaction at the request to sit at the left and the right hand of Jesus? They were offended. Why? Why were they offended? First, because they clearly saw the motivations, right? The ambitions of James and John. But why did that bother them so much? And the reality is it's because they had the exact same ambitions and motivations. And we see that in other places in scripture. In Mark 9, 33 through 36, it says, they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Now, I don't know if, if you're like me, but oftentimes when I've read this, right, these open dialogues, these open debates between the disciples, of which one of them is greatest, it, it kind of, I process it as silly. I process it as something that, that I just can't ever see actually happening in, in, in our day and age, right, in our church. But, but again, if, if you really think about the heart and you process who we are, have, have we ever been like that? And we may not openly debate which one of us is greatest, but have we thought it? Have we compared ourselves and maybe our own spiritual gifts, maybe the contributions we've been able to make, and have we looked at others? And have we congratulated ourselves? Have we even thought it would be nice to get a little recognition as it relates to the, to the gifts that I have? Or maybe we've seen others get recognized for their contribution, and we found that there was this, this envy that there was this jealousy that occurred in us that, again, this text that we're studying today just paints this picture of the contrast between Jesus' heart and the disciples' heart. But I think if we really reflect on the text, we realize that we're just a lot like the disciples in, in our motivations and in our ambitions. So what Jesus is going to do now is he's going to turn away from the question and he's going to deal with the heart of the matter both the heart that is in James and John and the heart that is in the other disciples. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. The first thing that, that Jesus does is he, he simply points to the world. He looks at the Gentiles, right? He looks at those who do not fear God. And he says, how do they measure greatness? And the reality is, it's about position. It's about power. It's about prestige. It's no different than it is today. It doesn't take much time on, on Facebook uh, or Instagram or the newspaper or CNN or Fox News to, to realize that there is this divided world that we live in. And the leaders in a democracy, right, the leaders that we have chosen, so oftentimes, it's just this, this sense of, of pursuit of power 
of prestige, of enjoying the positions therein rather than serving. So I, I don't know that our world today is any different. And he sees this in the heart of his disciples and he wants to say, but it ought not be. So he paints a very different picture of what greatness or significance is, is going to look like and is supposed to look like in his kingdom. In fact, he starts it with saying, but it is not this way among you. It should not be this way. Verses 43 and 44. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave to all. I mean, look at Jesus' teaching. It's, it's a paradox that he says, if you desire to be great, be a servant. Literally, the term means uh, diaconus, right? A deacon, be a bond servant to others, a voluntary servant to the needs of others. If we possess a strong desire to win, I mean, that's something about America, right? We, we, we have this passion, this, this conviction of finishing first. And he says, if you desire to be first, then be a slave to all. It's such a contradiction. It's such a paradox to our world around us, to what is kind of natively in our heart. And yet it's been a consistent theme throughout scripture. So in Mark 35, which John again taught on a couple of weeks ago, it says, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. And in Mark 30, in Luke 14, 8 through 10, he says, uh, and this is a Jesus teaching, he says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have, may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. So that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who, exalt, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, you know, it's interesting that, that Jesus' teaching is kind of exactly the context of James and John and what they're asking. That he's saying that you should take the most humble seats, so that if you're to be exalted, that it will be the Father that exalts you and not you exalting yourself. For where the shame would lie is to have exalted yourself and then to be demoted. Now, it's interesting that I have a real-life example of this in, 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 in my past. There was a time 15 years ago I was working for a private equity company and I, got, I was given the task of project managing the build out of an office. And so in the midst of that build out, it was kind of my job to assign places into the offices. And there were clearly executive offices and there were clearly junior executive offices. And when I went through this process, it was interesting because there were clearly some folks that fit in the executive offices. And there were lots of, of younger folks that, that fit in the junior exec offices, but I was in a little bit of an odd spot. I was one that, that could debatably be put in one or the other. And I had to put myself somewhere. So in the process, I actually thought of this teaching. I thought of Luke. I saw clearly what the teaching 
of Christ is. But guess what? I, um, I did not follow it. I uh, thought, man, that corner office sure is nice. It's bigger. The view would be great. There's an argument to be made that I could go there. And so instead, I put myself in the executive office. And guess what God did? <laughs> he humbled me. That actually, when it went to the executives, they actually moved me back to a junior executive office. And it was so good for me because I was exactly, I was the disciple. And I was seeking recognition and I was seeking glory for myself. And God gave me a pre-teaching that it wasn't the right thing to do. And then he gave me a very practical life experience that uh, honestly, I'll, I've never forgotten for obvious reasons. So throughout scripture, you see, you see Jesus teaching this, that rule and authority in his kingdom will be by faithful and humble service in the present age. That what the disciples needed to be doing, what we need to be doing, is concentrating on present service and not future honor. That it's the Gentile world, it's the world that we live in, it focuses on the benefits of position and power. That's not meant to be us. We're meant to concentrate on the behaviors that would qualify us to even be honored in the kingdom to come. In the midst of preparing for this sermon, I, I listened to a Piper sermon, and he had a great quote on humility. He said, humility is the soil by which everything good in the Christian life grows. And if that soil goes away, everything withers. I'll read that again. He says, humility is the soil by which everything good in the Christian life grows. And if that soil goes away, everything withers. So Jesus closes his instruction to the disciples, book ended, he started in verses 32 through 34, talking about what was going to happen to him, the sacrifice that he would make in Jerusalem. Then he deals with the disciples' heart and the contrast or the dichotomy of their own motivations, their ambitions, which is a dichotomy of our motivations and ambitions. But now Jesus comes back around to the bookend of the sacrifice that he's about to make. In verse 45, it says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That Jesus, the Messiah, the very Son of God, is going to submit himself to the Father's will. He's going to suffer. He's going to be shamed. He's going to be mocked. He's going to receive a judgment that is not his, and he's going to die, and he's going to do so willingly. And this is the lesson that he's trying to teach them, and this is the lesson that he's trying to teach us. And this should be the ambitions and the motivations of our heart. I thought uh, Dr. Constable did a phenomenal job of, um, of summarizing this verse when he says, this is not only the climax of this pericope, but it is the key verse of Mark's gospel. It summarizes the ministry of Jesus as the suffering servant of the Lord, Mark's particular emphasis. Here it constituted another announcement of Jesus' coming death but it added the purpose for his dying not previously mentioned. This verse contains the clearest statement of the object of Christ's coming found in the Gospels. But this theological declaration was made to enforce a practical truth for everyday conduct. And that the Apostle Paul finally got the message is clear from what he wrote in 1 John 3.16. Again, this contrast between John and this request and, and, and the dichotomy between the where his heart was to where it was and in the understanding in 1 John 3.16, 
But John, we, John 3, 16, he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, one of the things that, that I often do that I, that I find is helpful as I teach, as I prepare, as I go through, and, and not just when I'm preparing to teach, but honestly, just in my own study of scripture, is I find myself asking three questions as I finish, right? Is just to make sure that I'm walking away with an, with an understanding. And, and those questions are, what would God have me understand from the text? What am I to feel? What is the emotion that God would bring out in my heart from the text? And what am I to do? What would what, what obedience look like? And so I'd like you to walk you through the conclusions from the text that we've studied this morning in closing. Number one, what are we to understand? That Jesus knew with clarity and certainty what awaited him in Jerusalem. And he walked towards it. That the disciples never fully comprehended nor accepted the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus until after his appearing. And a significant source of their struggle was the existence of radically contrasting motives and ambitions from those of Jesus. And that Jesus repeatedly rebuked and redirected their selfish desires through teaching the radical paradox of being last and least, which was the example he would give them with his death on the cross. What are we to feel? Extreme gratitude and love of Jesus, our Savior whose deep affection for us compelled him to knowingly walk to his suffering, shame, and death. It needs to do something in our heart. It should do something in our soul to comprehend that Jesus knew what would happen, that he knew long, long ahead of time what awaited him, and yet he still walked through it. That is the glory of our God. That is the mercy of our Savior. The conviction we should feel that we are just like the disciples, too often focused on selfish and self-serving ambitions and not on the true nature of God's kingdom. And this is often evidenced by the manner in which we invest our time, our money, energy, dreams, and affections. Simply the way we live our life. Sometimes that should bring conviction, but there's a disconnect there of where Jesus' heart is and sometimes where my heart is. And a strengthened desire for humility that I should long for a meekness that I, that I don't possess, that I should feel a desire for that. And then finally, what does application from the text look like? To love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We should wholeheartedly worship and give thanks for the ransom paid. And again, our motivation should be moved because of the glory of our God and the ransom that he has paid. That we should confess these self-centered desires Asking God to do the impossible, right? To do the miracle within our own hearts that we would no longer seek every day in every relationships to be greatest, to be first. That God would somehow move us in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplaces to actually have a posture of last and least, to be able to live that out practically, to be a testimony for this world, right? A testimony of humility, a testimony of weakness that may speak louder than any words that we could possibly share to a lost world. That's the text this morning. The glory of Christ's sacrifice, the reality of the heart and the ambitions of the disciples that are just like us, but then bookended with the reality of Jesus' sacrifice and what that has done for the world and what that should do in us.